For the love of money, people will steal from their mother. For the love of money, people will rob their own brother. For the love of money, people can't even walk the street because they never know who in the world they're going to beat for that lean, mean, mean, green, almighty dollar, money. So sang the OJs in 1973 when they made their hit song, For the Love of Money, known to our nation. The title of that song, of course, comes straight out of the Word of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When Paul wrote that, he was merely summarizing what the Bible teaches from Old Testament to New Testament in many places, warning us about the dangers of pursuing money. Paul goes on in that same text to write, It is through this craving, that is, through the love of money, that some have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it may surprise you to see just how much the Bible talks about money. We have it in the Old Testament stories of the history of Israel, the warnings when they went into the land of promise that they wouldn't forget God as God prospered them. We see it in the wisdom literature in the book of Proverbs where we're warned about putting our confidence in money because it'll take wings and fly away. We see it in the teachings of Jesus. Did you know Jesus actually taught more about money, wealth, and possessions than he did about heaven? It's not because money is more important than heaven. It's because your attitude toward and relationship with money if you're not careful, could well keep you out of heaven. Jesus, on two occasions, used an Aramaic word for money. And some English translations just bring that word over. It's mammon. And he personified mammon, regarding it as a master or God that demands to be served. And in Matthew 6.24, he says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will love the one and hate the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or mammon. Some people try to do that. But Jesus says it's actually impossible to serve both. Money can be a wonderful servant, but it is a horrible master. So consequently, your attitude toward money, your relationship with money will inevitably and seriously impact the quality of your life now and your eternal destiny later. Well, if that's true, and it is, then the portion of God's Word that is before us this morning in our ongoing study of Ecclesiastes is of particular importance because it teaches us about our attitudes toward money and specifically warns us of the dangers of chasing after wealth. And it shows us how to avoid that danger, the dangers that necessarily come with wealth. Our text is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, going all the way through verse 9 of chapter 6. Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 
6, 9. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided, you'll find this passage on pages 555 and 556. So I encourage you to take a copy of God's Word, turn to it, open it up there, and follow along. I'm going to read this text, and then we're just going to work our way through it. And if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures in front of you, you're probably going to be lost and uh, it's not going to make much sense to you. But if you'll follow along in this passage, then we're simply going to work our way through it to hear what God has to say to us today from His Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is a gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase... They increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let them sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad bad venture. As he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain there is to him who toils, and what gain is there for him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. And yet, God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, But his soul is not satisfied with life's good things? He has no burial? I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the same place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, Yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This section of Ecclesiastes is written in a particular way so as to highlight a main point. 
The structure that we found in the verses I just read is known as a chiastic structure, which means that it repeats and arranges certain ideas in a way so that the main idea is found right in the middle of the passage. Chiasmus is a literary structure designed to emphasize a central truth. And when you find it in the Old Testament, which we do repeatedly, you'll see that it works like this. There'll be one point made here, a second point, then a third point, maybe the third point stated again, and then the second point, and then the first point. So it's, it's like stair steps. You go up one side and you come down the other, or like an A-frame ladder with parallel steps, one, two, three, two, one. Or you might think of it like a sandwich. You make a sandwich, you take a piece of bread, you put mustard, then you put cheese, and then you put maybe turkey meat, and then ham meat, and then cheese, and then mustard, and then bread, right? So the main point is the meat. The main point is the meat. But the other things make it interesting. You know, they kind of hold it together. Well, that's how this passage unfolds before us. There are three points in this passage, but they are stated like this. The first point, the second point, the main point, the second point, the first point. And what I want to do is rather than follow them the way that they flow out in the text, is take them as the first, second, third points and just show the connection between the way they're stated initially and then the way that they are repeated further down in the passage. But what the passage is designed to cause us to understand what it is actually teaching us this morning is that we must guard against pursuing riches. And we do this by learning how to enjoy God's daily gifts. So what's the first point? It's found in verses 8 through 12 of chapter 5, and then it's repeated in chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. Setting your heart on riches robs you of joy and contentment. Now the section actually begins, it opens with a brief introduction on oppressive structures in society. That's what we have in verses 8 and 9. And it's like the, the author wants to remind us that we're living in a fallen world. Don't, don't lose sight of the fact that this world is broken. So even the governmental systems, even the authorities, there are structures that are designed for our good, but even those will not bring about a utopia. So he says, don't be shocked by injustice and oppression in the world. The very structures, the governmental positions that God establishes that are designed to promote justice are prone to promoting injustice. And he says in verse 8 that the result is oppression of the poor, violation of justice. The reason for this is that there's corruption at every level. Verse 8, again, says, For the high officials watched by a higher one, they're yet watched by higher ones over them. In other words, everybody has their, their hand in the till. Everybody's looking out for something other than just simply what is right and good and just. Verse 9 says, however, There is gain for a land in every way when a king is committed to cultivating fields. In other words, that the government, even when it's fallen, even in this broken, fallen world, provides some benefit, and it provides benefit whenever it does things that operate for the welfare of the whole, like a cultivated field, or we might say like paved roads or the electric grid, these types of things that are beneficial for all of us. Again, we're being called to face reality. He's saying, don't be naive. Don't think 
that if you just get the right things in place, you just do the right things, then utopia will come. You're still living in a real world, a real world that has fallen. He goes on then in verses 10, 11, and 12 to teach us that money will never satisfy the person who loves it. Look at verse 10 again. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. To love money, to love wealth, is to relate to it in a way that we were never designed to relate. It means to value it too much. To put too much emphasis on it. To desire it too much. So that attaining more of it is always the goal of your life. Loving money and looking for satisfaction from wealth is like trying to quench your thirst by drinking salt water. You think, oh, I just need one more drink. Just one more and, and then that'll do it. I just need one more dollar. I just need one more increase to my income. When you love money, that's the inevitable pattern of thought that you fall into. With more wealth comes more need to spend. This is verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. I mean, just think about this. Think about the expenses that go with having a lot of money. When you have a lot of money, you have expenses that people who don't have a lot of money don't ever think about. You need a good accountant, maybe a good tax lawyer to help you figure out your taxes and avoid paying more than you should. You might need security. You might need some investment advisors. Things like that that just go with managing more than if you just had a little. And so verse 11 says that what the rich person inevitably winds up doing is watching his money flow out to cover increased expenses. What advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? He sees the expenses go up as his wealth goes up. Verse 12 says that more wealth brings with it more worries. He compares it to the sleep of a laborer. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. What's he talking about there? you got more to worry about. you got more stuff. It just goes with it. If you have a large income, you have more things to think about if you're going to take care of that income, that wealth in the right way. I mean, have you ever invested in the stock market? Have you ever done that? I did that. I started doing that when I was 15 years old. And back then, before the internet, every morning I'd get up and check the paper to see what my stocks were doing. Every morning. I had a friend who had a great deal of wealth who was heavily invested in the stock market who told me he finally divested himself of it because that's what he would do. He'd get up in the middle of the night to check what the futures were. And that he was always thinking about when he went to bed. He was always thinking about when he got up. And he said, this is not the way to live. So he just got rid of it. This is the point of the author here. Is that with much wealth come much concerns. Come much need to spend money in order to take care of what has been put in your hand. Well, after making his case. That money will never satisfy the person who loves it. This preacher, this author reiterates his point with a further explanation, and it's down at the end of the passage we read. In verses 7, 8, and 9 of chapter 6, he teaches us there and reiterates that physical appetites cannot finally be satisfied. 
They can't finally come to a point of complete satisfaction once for all. We work in order to live. Verse 7. All the toil of a man is for his mouth. Yet his appetite is not satisfied. I mean, you, you work, why? So that you can eat. Well, what, what happens when you eat? You can enjoy it. But you go to sleep. You wake up. You've got to eat again, right? The physical appetites are never finally, ultimately satisfied in this life. This is true for both wise people and foolish people. This is just reality. This is the way the world works. Verse 8, what advantage has the wise man over the fool? In this area, the answer is nothing. Nothing. They both have to eat. They both satisfy their, their appetite. And they will both have to do it again the next day and go on that way for the rest of, the li of their lives. At the end of verse 8, he says, a poor man who has learned how to live has figured out how to live well and does have an advantage. He says this man has learned how to conduct himself before the, the living. In verse 9 he says better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. In other words, this guy sees how things really are. He has a realistic view of the world rather than just letting his appetite go unchecked and thinking if I only had a little more, if I could only get more of this, then I would be happy, then I would be satisfied. Setting your heart on riches robs you of joy and contentment because money can never satisfy the person who loves it. Even Benjamin Franklin, who was no Christian, understood this. He said, money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, it makes one. Now, be clear. Money's not the problem. What's being condemned here is not wealth, not money. What we're being guarded against here is the love of money. This pursuit of money as the be-all, end-all. The unbridled pursuit of wealth or money is indeed evil. And the irony is, that those who live for money will never be satisfied by money. Instead, they will discover, as the text says in verse 10 of chapter 5, verse 9 of chapter 6, that such a way of living is vanity. It's trying to, to grasp the wind. Trying to strive after wind. You know why? You know why that's true? Because we were never designed to love money. God didn't create us in His image so that we would love wealth. We were created to love. We were created to love God and to love people. This is what Jesus makes perfectly clear when He was asked, what is the greatest commandment of all? In Matthew 22, when He answers that question, He puts it in these terms. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you live that way, you will not have room to love money, to love wealth. Now, brothers and sisters, we need to realize that this is what the Bible 
teaches us, this is what it warns us against, and this is 180 degrees opposed to what we're bombarded with every day. We receive messages every day that are designed for us to listen to them, enticing us to believe them that if we do imbibe them, will rob us of joy and contentment. We are being enticed by professional advertisers every day. We're being discipled. Parents, your children are being discipled every day by professionals who are seeking to get them and us to want what they're selling. To take, to have, to feel a sense of need for what they are offering. And so, we find ourselves, when we are being successfully enticed by them, thinking like this, if only I could have a car like that. If only I could live in this house. If only I had these clothes. If only I could take that vacation. If I only had these shoes, these books, these toys. And when we start thinking like that, believing that my life then would be filled with joy and satisfaction and contentment, you can be sure you have bought the bill of goods that's being sold to you by people who do not understand and do not believe what the Word of God teaches here. We are being encouraged to love money. To love the stuff that money can buy. And we're being encouraged down this path with promises of great joy and contentment that will inevitably accompany more wealth. Yet in reality, more wealth, more possessions can never satisfy a person who is made in the image of God. Why? Because, as the early church father Augustine realized 1,500 years ago when he prayed, Oh God, our hearts are restless until they come to rest in you. We're made by God to be like God to live for God, to find our joy and our contentment in God. And when anything else begins to take the place of priority in our lives that our Creator reserves for Himself, you can be sure, no matter how much of it you acquire, it will never, ever satisfy. God made us for Himself. He made us to love to love Him supremely, to love people sincerely. And sin has come into our lives to completely disorder our loves. When the human race fell away from God, sin came in and began to short-circuit our affections. We began to be rewired in bad ways so that we don't love as we ought to love, we don't love what we ought to love. And that's the way we live until God, by His grace, comes and reveals Himself to us and opens up our understanding to see His great love for sinners in Jesus Christ. And when you experience God's love in Christ, your own loves begin to be reordered in right ways. And you realize that the greatest thing in all the world is God. 
You're made for God. And as you're connected to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you begin to experience the joy and contentment that can be found nowhere else. This is how God has designed us. It is what God calls us to know and experience. The reason so many people have their order, their loves disordered and remain living that way is because they have never come to experience the love and kindness of Jesus Christ. Who died on a cross in order to restore us to God. Let me just ask you. I mean, can you honestly say right now as you sit here this morning that you love God supremely? That you love Him above everything else that your heart might desire. When it comes to keeping God's commandments and pursuing other, maybe even legitimate desires, is your default mode to obey God because you love Him? Or is that even a thought? Does that thought even cross your mind? Or have you become so acclimated to the way that the world bombards us and trying to entice us to think that that's not even a question in your mind. God made us for Himself. And He calls us to love Him supremely. To serve Him supremely. What is it? What is it that you serve? What is it that motivates you? What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? What is it that keeps you going? Are you trying to serve some, what the Bible describes as insatiable appetite, desire? Or the God who created you for Himself who offers to you reconciliation to know Him as you acknowledge what's true about yourself in this world and you see His great love for sinners? You'll never love right until you come to know the love of God. And God so loved this world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Do you know that? Have you experienced that? If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never seen yourself as spiritually bankrupt before God and in need of what only He can provide and you haven't seen that God has loved sinners so much He sent His Son into the world to provide for us what we desperately need and to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. If you've never seen that before, I pray you'll see it today. I pray that God will arrest you, that the truth of this text will just register with you and you'll recognize, you know, I've been running hard long time after wealth. I've been trying to get better. I've been trying to advance. I've been trying to gain. And it just seems like with every new goal that I hit, there's still this void in me. You know why it is? Because you were made for something greater than that. You were made for God. And God calls you to find real joy, real life in Him. You trust His Son, the Lord Jesus, and you will begin to experience the great love that God has for you in Christ. Setting your heart on riches robs you of joy and contentment. Building on that point, the author of our text goes on to teach us that failing to enjoy life is an evil tragedy failure to have joy in this world is not just sad God calls it evil we see this in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 5 and then again the first six verses of chapter 6 
What these verses remind us is that God is for our joy. God's not opposed to our joy. God created joy. He created our ability to experience joy. That's why he spends so much time in his word warning us of pathways that call out to us, oh, this is the way of contentment. This is the way of joy. God warns us against those dead-end roads so that we might turn away from them and find the pathway that leads to true joy. When we fail to enjoy life as he designed it, God calls it evil. Evil. So we see in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 5 how hoarding wealth, accumulating more and more, that doesn't ultimately bring joy. Koalith, the, the preacher, the author of this text, says he observes a wealthy man. A man who saves a lot of money. A man whose bank account, whose portfolio goes up and up and up in value. And yet, it is to his own detriment. Verse 13, he says, in the middle of that, riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. He was wealthy. He invested in his bank account, but it wound up hurting him. He lost his wealth, the text says, in a bad venture. He winds up being wiped out financially. He has nothing to leave his son. That man, verses 15 and 16 says, will leave the world the way that he came. Not only does he not have any kind of investment to leave his children, whatever he does have is going to be left behind anyway. Verse 16, he says, this is all toiling for the wind. Verse 17 is a sad commentary of how a guy like this lives. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness, anger. He's trying to get more. He, he worked hard. He, he saved. He invested so that he might experience joy and contentment. But what has happened to him is the exact opposite of that which he strived for. Think about this. Kola says, this is what I saw. Here's a hard worker. Here's a guy that invested shrewdly. Here's a guy that saved his money. He didn't go out and spend it frivolously, frivolously. And then tragedy struck. He lost it all. And the result was his days were spent in vexation, sickness, and anger. He scratched, he clawed, he worked his way to the top. He hoarded what he earned. Yet through an unfortunate turn of events, he lost everything. We're not told what those turn of events were. Could have been a foolish investment. Maybe he got cheated. Maybe someone stole his money. It could have just been a natural disaster. But the result is he has nothing that he intended to have, nothing that he thought he was securing when he was doing all of that work. And verse 13 says, this is a grievous evil. God says, not only is this a sad story, it's wicked. It's evil. It's not the way God created us to live. This reminds us of the story that Jesus told when somebody came to him and tried to engage him and tangle him in settling accounts between him and his brother. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus responded by telling the story of a rich farmer. Let me just read to you part of what he said. Luke 12, Jesus says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. More wealth, more problems. You see that? It's inevitable. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, 
Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry, be contented, enjoy life. But God said to him, Jesus said, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? And then he applies it, he says, so is everyone who, is, who lays up treasure in this world but is not rich toward God. It's an evil tragedy to miss out on real joy by living this way, thinking that you are pursuing what will bring you joy. You live for money, you work for money, you love money, you hoard money, and then you lose it all. So when you die, you're still going to stand before God to give an account of all your life, and you have nothing. Well, the preacher makes this same point in another story, another observation that he gives us in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And this story is designed to reiterate the point that possessing wealth does not guarantee joy. It just can't. Listen to what he says. Verse 1, chapter 6, Ecclesiastes. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many and his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over yet enjoy no good do not all go to the same place. You see what he's doing? He's describing a tragic life. A life that on the account of many people would say, oh, success. Look what this guy has done. And yet, in reality, is evil and tragic. Here's a man blessed with wealth, blessed with possessions, blessed with honor, but he doesn't have any ability to enjoy them. He lives long. He has many children, both of which are signs of great blessings of God, especially in the Old Testament Hebrew way of thinking about blessings. But he finds no satisfaction with life's good things in verse 3. Even if he lived 2,000 years, he's speaking hyperbole here. If he had all those blessings... If he couldn't enjoy them, his life would be an evil tragedy. He says, a stillborn child would be better off than such a person. Now, when he uses this analogy, he's not diminishing the pain of stillbirth. Rather, he's trying to emphasize the tragedy of having good things in life without the ability to enjoy them. It'd be like being given a brand new car and no keys. What you've always wanted, no ability to enjoy. It would be like somebody saying, I'm going to give you a brand new custom-made 80-foot yacht. It's right in the middle of North Dakota. 
No ability to enjoy it. Wonderful, wonderful gifts. God is for our joy. And yet the only way that we can enjoy life, the life that He gives and the things that He gives to us in life, is to do so by living on His terms. When you live for wealth, when you chase after riches, you're living contrary to the way that He designed for you to live. And you will never experience the joy and contentment that He offers to you. Setting your heart upon riches robs you of joy and contentment. And failing to enjoy life is an evil tragedy. And that then leads us to the main point. The focal point of this passage. Which is this. Learning to recognize God's gifts leads to life, a life of joy and contentment. We see this in verses 18, 19, and 20 of chapter 5. Life is a gift from God. All the things we have in this life are blessings from God, including wealth. It's His gift. Recognizing this and living in the light of this leads to joy and contentment. Listen to the way the preacher makes his point. Verse 18, he says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting, he's already described things that he's seen to be horrible and evil. What's good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For that is his lot. It's to come to terms with what life is and what it's not. What it can do, what it can't do. And to enjoy the things that God puts into your hand in this life. Verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What is he saying? He says, All of life is grace, all of life is a gift. Everything you have, everything you are, is because of God. God has done this for you. Verse 18, He's given us the days of our lives. Verse 19, He gives us wealth and possessions as well as the power to enjoy them. This is the same point that He made in chapter 6, verse 2, when He's looking at a tragedy when He says, God gives wealth, possessions, and honor. Yet to this guy, God did not give him the power to enjoy them. You know, both of these come from God. The, the blessings, the things that you can take advantage of in this few, these few years on earth, and the ability to enjoy those things. Both of those come from God. So God gives us not only a delicious meal, He gives us taste buds, appetites to enjoy. You know, there, there are people who have plenty of food, but because they're sick, they have no appetite. And there are people who have appetites, but they don't have enough food. But if you sit down to a meal today that tastes good, thank God for the good food and the ability to enjoy it because they are both gifts from God. If this is true, if God gives wealth, God gives possessions, and God gives the ability to enjoy wealth and possessions, how should we be living? What should be most important to us in life? 
Shouldn't we be going hard after God? To find joy in this world, shouldn't we seek first God, His kingdom, the righteousness that comes from Him, and trust Him to add all these things to us as He sees fit? Recognizing life as grace sets you free to enjoy it. Verse 20 says, It's such a person who gets it will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. In other words, he's not going to be obsessed with money. He's not going to be obsessed waking up in the middle of the night to check the stock market. He's not going to be overrun with fears and concerns about the things that he has or the things that he doesn't have. He's going to realize, man, God is good. God's done this for me and God's given me the ability to enjoy the things that he's placed within my hands. And this is an absolute key. It's learning to see that all of life is a gift of God. All of life is grace. All you have, all you ever will have, every good thing you enjoy, it is yours because God's provided it for you. And that's true whether your wealth is great or whether your wealth is little. And when you start thinking this way, when you keep this to the forefront of your mind, then you're free. You're free to seek a promotion. You're free to start a business. You're free to increase your income. You're free to enjoy the things in life because you're not making them more important than they are. You have God central. And you are seeking Him first and foremost. You're free to enjoy your wealth without turning the pursuit of wealth into your passion or the accumulation of wealth into an idol. When you recognize that life is all of grace, that it's all a gift of God, then you'll be in a position humbly to receive it from Him and to learn how to enjoy life and all of the things that He gives to you in this life on His terms. And what are His terms? Well, Jesus put it very well in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, when He told His disciples, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, you're not going to be caught up in the lie that says what you possess or how much you make or what you have is what matters most. You'll be delivered from that. And then you will see your life doesn't consist in that. That you are much more than a consumer. So you guard your heart against covetousness. You listen to advertisements. You read the billboards with discernment, recognizing that there is an agenda at work in those things that is contrary to the agenda that God sets for you about how you should live in this world. How do you do this? You do it by making sure, as Jesus put it in Luke 12, 21, that you are rich toward God. Discover the spiritual wealth that is found in Jesus Christ. You do this by trusting Him. Taking Him at His word. Dedicating yourself to Him. Living for Him. Finding your life in Him. If you're not trusting Christ, then you're going to miss all of this. And your greatest need is to come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord. Today. Today. Trust Him Today, if you know Christ, brothers and sisters, we're not free from the temptations.
to fall into these pitfalls. We've got to constantly be reminded and having our minds transformed, renewed by the word so that we see things rightly. And we learn how to enjoy this life without making idols of the things that come to us in this life. There are eternal consequences that hang on the decisions you make about how you relate to your wealth and possessions. Money can be a great blessing, but it can also be a great curse. We must remember that our wealth comes from God. Just as he gives it, so he can take it away. So we should seek to honor the Lord with our wealth and ask him to enable us to use it and to enjoy it in the few years we have here for his honor and glory. Filter the advertisements that you are bombarded with day in and day out. Parents, do this for your children. Don't just assume that they're going to learn these lessons because there are myriads of people who are lined up to disciple them to think contrary to this. And you must help them think rightly. Help them to understand commercials. Watch commercials with your children and just point out what is being done and why. Help them to see it. And help them to see the way things are presented and how they're designed to entice you to create a sense of lack in you, to create a sense of need or desire in you. Why? So that you'll be better, you'll have a better life? No. So that they'll make money. That's all it is. It's not necessarily evil, but it certainly can be evil very quickly. And if you buy into it, then you are forfeiting the pathway where real joy and contentment comes. The next few weeks, it's already started. All right, parents, please help your children to think through this. Don't help them down the road of this world's way of thinking that if they don't get this toy, if they don't have this experience, then there's not going to be any joy in their life. Show them by your own life. Teach them that great joy, great contentment is found in having Jesus Christ. And that if we have Christ, we really do have everything we need. And if God chooses to place other things in our hands, wonderful. Enjoy those things without letting those things be elevated in importance above Christ. We need to take God's word seriously at this point. Listen, listen to the word whenever it instructs us about these practical lessons of how to live in this world with material possessions. I want to just close with what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen. Listen to this. This is for us, brothers and sisters. This is for us. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness. Not possessions. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Just ask yourself, am I content having food and clothing? Am I okay? Can I find real joy if that's all that God puts in my hands? Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Do we believe that? This is the word of God talking here. Do we believe that? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. As for the rich, 
in this present age, he goes on to say, charge them not to be haughty. You think that they've attained something that is superior to everybody else or that they deserve to be above everybody else. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Why? Because riches can take wings and fly away. But to set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God's not against our joys, not against you enjoying the things that he puts in your hands. He's given it to you to richly enjoy as you put your hope in him. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Don't chase after wealth and riches. Chase after God. You were made to know Him. You were made to love Him above everything else and everyone else. Seek Him and His kingdom as your top priority. He will give you all that you need. And not only that, He will give you the ability to enjoy whatever He puts in your hands. Enjoy it. You won't turn it into an idol. and You won't let it compete with your affections for our great God who created us and who saves us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Please help us to understand it and to seal truth from your word to our hearts. I pray that the things we've looked at this morning might resonate within us and that every good and true thing that was said, your spirit would seal it to our hearts. Deliver us from the fantasy of thinking if we just had more and could do more, then our lives would be content. Help us to find our joy and satisfaction in you. For Jesus' sake, amen.